Now let us turn to the book of Daniel again, if you will, please. We uh, introduced ourselves into this Daniel by means of this study of the Bible as literature out in the state of Washington, in this case that got into the courts, and the case is now being appealed and we're going to be hearing a great deal about it. But it was interesting to notice that down in Washington, during the hearings before the Senate committee of the uh, judiciary, the subcommittee, that uh, these liberals who are opposing the use of prayer in the schools went out of their way. They repeatedly made reference to the fact that they thought the Bible ought to be studied as literature. And they use this occasion to further their interest as it has been represented in this court case out in the state of Washington. So we're going to hear a great deal about this study of the Bible because these liberals have control and then they bring all the higher critical attack upon the scriptures. And of course Daniel didn't write anything and Moses never wrote anything and David didn't write his psalms. And they make out of the book purely a human book full of errors and mistakes, a lot of myths, a lot of nice legends that you can get some help from. Very much on the order that you'd get help from studying Aesop's fables or maybe reading some Tennyson or Shakespeare. But not anything more than that. Now, we got into this book of Daniel on that basis. And I sought to show you that not only does our Lord Jesus Christ say, speak of Daniel, he spoke of Moses, he spoke of David, he spoke of Isaiah. It seems that every time the critics come to attack the Bible and to take away from the Bible its reliability and its trustworthiness, you turn over to the Lord Jesus and he's had something to say about that point. And he took care of these matters for us long ago. And we accept Moses, we accept David, we accept Daniel, just on the statements of our Lord. If you can't believe Jesus, you can't believe anybody. And if he isn't right in these matters, then how in the world can we say he's right in these matters that have to do with heaven and with eternity? And he said, if I tell you earthly things and you believe me not, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So we believe Jesus Christ. As far as we're concerned, that's our final source of authority. We don't ask for any more. That's enough. And when Jesus said the scriptures can't be broken, well, they can't be broken. When Jesus said, all things written in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and the prophets concerning me must be fulfilled, well, they're going to be fulfilled. And Jesus Christ is our final word. He was raised from the dead. He knows all about these matters of heaven and hell and about eternity. And we not want no one else to whom we can appeal. He alone has the words of eternal life. Now, when we turned into the book of Daniel, we discovered that Daniel has many things in it that are of a predictive nature. Uh, Daniel wrote, or lived around 550 B.C., 600 in that period. University in Washington said he, his book was written at 100 after 100 A.D. or B.C. So he'd been gone about 400 years when his book was written, according to these new critical theories. Now, they don't accept them as theories, though. They present them as fact. But you see, what Daniel did in his book 
was to simply report and record what God gave him. And God gave him predictions of a hundred years in advance, two hundred years, three hundred years, four hundred and fifty years, and he saw Antiochus Epiphanes. He saw Alexander the Great. He saw this wide span, and he also saw the Messiah. David saw the Messiah. Moses saw the Messiah, a prophet shall the Lord thy God raise up unto me, unto thee like unto me, and unto him shalt thou hearken. Daniel saw the Messiah. And he saw him in his crucifixion, and he saw him in his coming glory, the ancient of days with the clouds of heaven. Daniel saw the Lord Jesus Christ. But as Daniel saw the Lord Jesus Christ, he also was privileged to see yonder into the very end time and see some of these things concerning the period at the time when our Lord would come back. The second time. Now if you're going to throw Daniel out because of the 11th chapter where he sees the rising Medo-Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire and the Roman Empire and then he gets into these various kings and rulers that had to do with the children of Israel during that period before the coming of Christ and redate the book because of that. Beloved, you ought to redate the book after the time of the tribulation which is yet ahead of us. You're going to do that. The problem is Daniel has so many of these prophecies Standing over such a wide range of time that you can't just throw his book out. You just can't do it. If you're going to throw it out on the basis of the fact that he made some predictions. We are confronted in Daniel with this magnificent phenomena of predictive prophecy. In which God Almighty, who knows the end from the beginning, has been pleased to reveal unto his prophets some of these great events which were yet to come. You had it in Isaiah, the night that we dealt with Cyrus, King Cyrus. Here Isaiah called Cyrus the king, my servant, 200 years before he was ever here, named him. Marvelous predictive prophecy. But the modernists, they can't accept it. The liberals, they can't believe it. So they have to tear Isaiah to pieces and fix it up and adjust it around so that the fellow who wrote that passage wrote it after Cyrus was here. And you have unbelief rearranging the Bible to fit their program. While those of us who are Christians, we don't rearrange anything. We accept it like it's been presented to us. Because the way in which God presented it to us is the way in which he wanted us to have it. So that our faith could be blessed, our souls could be uh, saved, and we could rejoice in the revelation which we have. Beloved, let's not be ashamed of the fact that we're a peculiar people. You have to be born again to be a Christian. You become a child of God and you have supernatural power. The power of the gospels come upon us and the power of God worketh in us. And we're different from the rest of these people. God intended for us to be different. The rest of them are in the world. The rest of them are full of darkness. The rest of them are blaspheming God. The rest of them are living in the lust of the flesh. The rest of them know nothing about the things of eternity because they're outside of Christ and they're without hope and without God in this world. We're a different kind of people. 
We have become the children of the living God because we've accepted his revelation. And beloved, we accept the whole thing. We accept the whole package. We accept everything that he has been pleased to give unto us. And our problem is simply learning about, simply understanding what he's given unto us. The revealed things are for us and are our children, but the secret things are for the Lord our God. And the things which he has determined to keep secret, we leave them in his care. But the things which he has been pleased to reveal unto us, these are the matters that we search and we study. And we earnestly desire to obtain their true meaning in order that we might be blessed and serve and honor the Lord. And consequently, as Christians, we are people of this book. We are a company who have an infallible guide. And that guide is not a man. That guide is not a church. That guide is not a state. That guide is not an educational system. That guide is the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the Holy Scriptures. This is Christianity. And this is the very substance of what we have for the blessing of our souls. And once you become a child of God, it is the Word of God which satisfies. It is the Word of God which comforts. It is the Word of God which gives us power. It is the Word of God which is our meat and our drink. Now when you came down to the end of the book of Daniel, you'll turn to that last chapter again. That last chapter, Daniel is told in verse 9, Go thy way, Daniel. Go thy way. For the words are closed. The words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Now, beloved, many of the things that Daniel was told, his Nebuchadnezzar dream in chapter 2, which is the key to the whole book, it's the greatest prophecy of the whole book. Here's this image of a man and here's the head of gold and here's the silver and here's the brass and here's the iron and the two legs of iron and then toes of clay and iron mixed there it is and then in the days of these final kings comes this stone cut out without hands and smites the thing and it's destroyed and God gave Daniel the interpretation of that dream God not ever only gave the dream so he could tell Nebuchadnezzar what it was, but then he said, Daniel, this is the interpretation of that dream. And consequently, you have a beautiful dream and all of its beauty, and then right alongside it, thou art the head of gold, old Nebuchadnezzar. And then here comes the silver, another kingdom. And here comes the brass, another kingdom. And here comes the iron, another kingdom. And here comes the two legs, as it's extended. And you move on down, beloved, till the ten kingdoms with the ten toes and the iron and the clay all mixed together. And then we're told, in the days of these kings shall the Son of God God, the Son of Man, shall set up a kingdom. You know, over and over again, we have parables, and Jesus gives us the interpretation of the parable. We have these predictive prophecies, and then the interpretations are given. You come on down to the seventh chapter, where you got the same identical thing, same kingdoms, but instead of being gold and silver and brass 
and, and, and iron and clay mixed with iron. This time they're beast, a lion and a, uh, a bear and a, a leopard. And then you have a big dragon of all descriptions. Same kingdoms, just described in different ways. And they're all set before us. But you come down to the end of this whole sequence of kingdoms and in that day the Son of Man is going to set up his kingdom. And it's there in that great seventh chapter that you finally see the Ancient of Days coming and the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And it's the Son of God coming at the end of this time down to this old earth to gather unto himself his people and to set up a kingdom. Now that's all been revealed to us. That's all very plain. You can understand that just as clear as can be. And it's within that framework that we then begin to study and fit in these other things. But beloved, it was a lot of these other things that God told Daniel, the books closed Daniel, and it sealed Daniel until the time of the end. And when you get down to the time of the end, Daniel, then these things will be more clear and people will understand. And notice what he says. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Do you know, beloved, tonight in the world in which you and I live, these liberals, these modernists, these ungodly men who profess to be prophets and preachers, who have all their programs, they don't understand. They don't understand you. They don't understand me. They can't understand what it is. It makes us live. It makes us tick. They just can't understand us. They could, they've never seen anybody like this. They just don't understand us. But we're in a position where we understand them and we understand ourselves. They don't understand us. And they're groping and groping and struggling and they think they've got some vision that's come out of their own imagination. They're very proud of it. But no, beloved, our visions have come out of this book. And we have only one vision, that's all. That the world was created by our God for his glory. He made the heavens, he made the earth, he made man in his own likeness and in his own image for his glory. And when we sinned and brought upon ourselves the awful miseries of this life and the penalty of death, this awful thing called death, when we brought it upon ourselves and it's here, God sent his Son in his infinite mercy into this old world, into the struggle in which man finds himself. And he came in this old world to be identified with us, but not with our sin. Beloved, there had to be a virgin birth. There had to be an entrance whereby he didn't partake of the natural generation and take upon himself the guilt and the penalty of his own sin. He had to be free from that connection so that when he came here and he lived and kept the law and didn't sin, then he could deal with sin and open the grave and give us life. And beloved, that's a vision. That's the gospel. That's the only thing that is worth talking about. It's the good news that God loved us and gave His Son to be a propitiation on that cross that we might have freedom from our sins and its penalties and that we might be justified by grace and through faith and that we might be His children. That's the vision. 
Now notice this. And from the time of the daily sacrifices shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. Now, beloved, there are days, figures, statistics. They mean something. We're supposed to try to find out what they mean. We're supposed to try to look at these things. It's been put here in black and white. He says the wicked won't understand, but the wise will understand. From the time of the daily sacrifices that they shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred five and thirty days. But go thy way, Daniel. Go thy way till the end be. Go thy way, Daniel, until the end time. For thou shalt rest, Daniel. Your body's going to be put down in that grave like anybody else's. Thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Daniel, you're going to be raised from the dead. Daniel, you're going to come out of the grave. And Daniel, on that day, when you are raised from the dead, then, Daniel, you'll see and you'll understand even these things which are sealed until the very time of the end. Now, as we got into the last of that 11th chapter last Sunday night, we noticed that there were statements there about this final great uh, little horn or this king that were of such a nature that... It couldn't possibly have applied to anybody just at that time and that you undoubtedly had a projection over into the very end time as the references indicated. Now in the ninth chapter, beloved, will you turn to that ninth chapter, verse 26 and 27. Here we have the problem and the key to what is called the great tribulation period. In verse 26, And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now, beloved, that word is Messiah. There's no debating it at all. It is Messiah. Unquestionably, it is a reference to Jesus Christ. Shall be cut off, but not for himself. No, he's going to die for us and for the elect, for his bride, for the church. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. And Jerusalem was destroyed, and the sanctuary, and it was destroyed. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Literally in the Hebrew, if you'll notice your little note there, unto the end wars and desolations, or wars and rumors of wars. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now here's your 70th week left over. Here's a week left over. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblations to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Well, now here's the prince that shall come. He's going to destroy the city. We're told that. Well, that did happen. There's no doubt about it. And then we've got this reference to confirm the covenant with many for one week. Well, you've got to go back and fit that week into the promise of 70 weeks. That's in verse 24. 
Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks. Well, beloved, you had a total here of uh, three different groups, if you'll remember. Uh, there was first, the first group of seven weeks, the second group of sixty-nine uh, of sixty uh, of sixty-two weeks, which makes a total of sixty-nine weeks, and then you have the seventieth week left over. It's still there, and on the basis of you can calculate back now without any difficulty on the basis of the seventy weeks and the sixty-nine weeks. From the time of the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem, as stated here, until the time of the Messiah the Prince and when he was cut off, it's into that period on the basis of estimating each one of those weeks or each day of a week to be a year. So one week would be a total of seven years. Of seven years. Now, beloved, will you turn, if you will, please, to this passage which says that he shall be cut off. And uh, then you have a break until the end, until the end. You have a big break in there. And then you have the introduction of the one week again. And in the midst of this week, uh, something is going to happen. And the midst of a seven-day week would be three and a half days and three and a half days on the same calculation would be 42 months. And 42 months on the basis of 30 days to a month would be 1,260. Now there's where you get some of these calculations right out of there. That's where they come from. Now will you turn over to the book of Revelation to the 13th chapter that I read to you tonight and some of these other passages. And you run into some figures over there that are very interesting and you begin to wonder. And in this 13th chapter of Revelation, you have a reference here to this beast. First, the beast out of the sea, which is undoubtedly your, your great world political ruler. And then you have another reference here to a beast out of the earth. And in verse 5, you said, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and powers was given unto him to continue... He'd already been in power, ladies and gentlemen, but he continues 40 and 2 months. Well, what is 40 and 2 months? 40 and 2 months is 3 and a half years, and it's 1,260 days. That's what it is. And here you have a definite tie-in, now beloved. The main, you can't get into some of these details, and I question some men going too far, but the main outlines of this structure are there. They are here. And you can put them together, and it's not difficult for you to put them together. It's there for you to read. Now, here is the question that a lot of people have, and I'll tell you exactly where we stand and where the Bible Presbyterian Church stands and where we have always stood. We believe that the Lord is going to come and take us away. We believe in the rapture of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he takes us away, you're going into this tremendous period of tribulation. We're going into it. The world is going to go into it. 
And that period is going to uh, be divided into three and a half years. And you've got these breaks that come at this particular point. Here they are. Now there are some people today, some fundamentalists, who believe that the Lord is going to come at the middle of this week. What they call mid-tribulation rapture. And it's only been in recent years that some men have been advocating the mid-tribulation rapture. But we do not follow that idea. We do not accept that idea. We accept the idea that the Lord is going to carry us to himself. He says, watch, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And we believe that the Lord is going to take his bride to himself. Then the 70th week will begin. And in the middle of that 70th week, you'll begin this awful, awful, terrible, dark days that will fall upon the Hebrew people during that time. Now may I make it very, very plain to you, dear people here tonight, that if you have to believe that the Lord is going to come in the middle of the tribulation, then what you ought to be looking for is not the Lord, but for the beginning of the tribulation, because then you know he'll be here in 42 months. And that's one of the difficulties with this whole idea of this mid-tribulation idea that the Lord is going to come. Now we have some other people who take the idea that the Lord's going to come at the end of the tribulation. That the church is going to pass through the tribulation. Well, if you want to take that view, then you don't need to worry about the Lord coming. The thing you do is decide when the tribulation starts, and then you can figure out when he'll get here. That's your problem. Beloved, that is not your problem. The problem which you and I have as believers is to believe that he may come any moment. Watch. And when the Lord told you and me to watch for him and for his return, he didn't mean that we were trying to figure out when the tribulation would start. And then if you believed in the mid-tribulation, you had 42 months. And if you believed in the post-tribulation, then you'd wait for seven years for him to arrive. We're not calculating the Lord's coming on the basis of any tabulation of any kind, for ye know neither the day nor the hour. And furthermore, we are looking for the coming of the Lord tonight. We're looking for the coming of the Lord at any time. And all you need to do is to turn to these magnificent passages the Apostle Paul gives us there in 1 Thessalonians. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the great comfort of that passage, the great joy of that passage, is that we may go to be with the Lord. This is the word, that we may gather ourselves into his presence and in being delivered from all of the circumstances in which we find ourselves in this old world of darkness, we will be in that great triumph that belongs to Jesus Christ. When we used to talk about being premillennial, and we always have been, this church has always been a premillennial church, as we call it. Back in those old days, 30 years ago, nobody ever tried to make a distinction between mid-trib and pre-trib and post-trib. That's only in these last two years that some fellows have decided that I'd like to figure that out. We never had that problem. And beloved, we don't have it tonight. The greatest blessed hope. How in the world can you have a blessed hope 
when you finally decide that it started and you have to sit around three and a half years waiting for it to come to pass. That is not the blessed hope. The glorious appearing, the blessed hope is that he gathers us into his presence in the twinkling of an eye. There's a sound, the shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and he carries us to himself. But, beloved, we are in a position when we understand what is taking place to see these tremendous currents, to see these tremendous movements which are preparing for the coming of the beast and for the rise of Antichrist. Now, in the book of Revelation, you have two of them. There's a beast in 13 and there's the, the beast out of the earth. Two of them, one out of the sea, one out of the earth. One undoubtedly is the political ruler of the world. The other is a religious leader, a prophet, who's telling everybody to worship this beast. And you have these two great figures that arise. They're described. One of the problems that you have in Thessalonians, the second chapter, one of the problems you have here in Daniel, is which one of these figures is this particular prophecy talking about? That is part of your problem. But beloved, when you get to the story that we're to have a world power, a world beast, and alongside of him will be a great religious leader of some time who will turn to him. When you get to the 17th and 18th chapters of Revelation, you have this beast, the world power, and on his back is riding a scarlet woman who is the ecclesiastical system. And the church and the state are working together. And that's what you have. And we can see these things. And as we see these things in the Bible, then we look about us in the day in which we live. And lo and behold, the world, the stage, everything is getting set for the accomplishment of this very thing. Now this morning I preached in Cape May. And in my message I gave the first announcement of something that's come into my hand. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to begin to report it and to discuss it to my radio audience. But there has come into my hand from New York an inside document prepared in the National Council of Churches, prepared out of the findings of its staff, the staff, ladies and gentlemen. And this document lays out the program and the policies which the council should pursue and undertake in the future. This paper was prepared specifically for a consultation which they were holding in Chicago. It explains it all there. Tells how they prepared it. And it says that what they have prepared there is for the meeting of the National Council in Miami in, June, in December and the next triennium, the next three years. I say to you that it's the most important document that has ever come into my hands so far as this National Council or this ecumenical movement is concerned. And I want you to hear it. We're going to print it in full. It'll be in the beacon. I'm going to circulate it far and wide. I'm going to give it the widest possible exposure that we can have. But do you know what this National Council of Churches staff... Now, this is the staff. This is the inside working all this up. They just say very plainly that this whole world is going to be one great world state. 
and that the world right now with its intellectual power and with its political power is sufficient to itself that it doesn't need any outside assistance from anybody anywhere there's no need anymore for any supernatural assistance to this old world it's all here and their business now is to fit into the political programs of the nations in their planning to bring to pass this overall great wonderful world state and the church and the state are now going to work and plan together. They're going to plan with the political leaders of the world to bring about this great, glorious, revolutionary society of which they speak. And then after they get through with all of that, then they go into specific programs, specific details as to how they're going to have to train themselves for political action. And how it's going to be the business of the church to be in this political field and help to implement this program which will bring about all this great world society in which they're going to eliminate or they're going to control, they're going to eliminate excessive populations and they're going to control the birth of humanity. I must confess they've got a good program. At least they think it's pretty good. They're going to run this thing very nicely according to their pattern. It's all spelled out. And they are going to help build this world state. And when they get this world state built, then the world state is to turn to this church group and give them assistance and give them power. It's all outlined. Now, I've told you these things were going to come to pass, and I've talked about these things through the years. But I can tell you now that God Almighty in his good providence and what a blessed providence it was brought me the whole program as they have written it out for themselves by their staff. You will lead it, read it and you will be utterly amazed. We're going to have a beastly state. It's going to be a humanism which will be glorified. And they talk about this world secularized gospel that they're going to produce. Beloved, they become dreamers, they become planners, they become politicians, they become everything in the world but the messengers of the new covenant. Everything in the world but the heralders of the good news that God has given us his son. I'm not interested in a plan which they're working out for uh, helping humanity in some great world state. I'm interested in the plan of salvation which God has given to us to preach to men that they might become the salt upon this earth and that we might wait and long and look for that day when he shall come and the rapture shall gather us into his presence and we shall be delivered from this awful tribulation. I'm very much concerned about the way in which these various Jewish groups are attacking us and joining in this open defamation of our name and good character. And I'm trying to tell the Christian people everywhere to love the Jews and be patient, but you watch them, beloved. You watch them. And see what's going to happen. Our Savior was a Jew. And he died for their sins. He died as their Messiah. And he wants them to look to him and to be saved and to put their trust in Jesus of Nazareth who was the seed and the son of David. 
Now what we have to do as believers is to look to the book. Here's your beast. Here's your antichrist. Here's your false prophet. Here's the apostasy. And as these things begin to come to pass, as these things begin to come to pass, you lift up your eyes, for the redemption of your bodies draweth nigh. We're moving so rapidly, so close, the wise shall understand, the wise shall read it, the wise shall put Daniel together with Revelation. The wise shall be able to put these pictures together. And they look at these things and say, Here, I understand, I understand, understand. The Lord is coming. The coming of the Lord is near. And beloved, the coming of the Lord is so near that you don't dare postpone your acceptance of Him. I gave the invitation at Cape May this morning. A lady accepted the Lord. I gave an invitation and said, how many of you people are ready to leave the National Council of Churches? And hands went up. A great number of hands went up. By the way, on Friday night, when Mr. Norris finished his great message on why Christians shouldn't take a drop of drink and they should be total abstainers, it was a wonderful message. Marvelous message. I made an appeal. I thought of the old days when the Methodists used to sing about the the brewery's big horses won't run over you. And so I got up and I asked everybody there who'd make a pledge tonight that they would never touch another drop of intoxicating drinks. I asked them. You know, I'm surprised some of the people put up their hands. I was surprised. Some of the people put up their hands. From the day you are born again, beloved, from the day you become a child of God, you ought to leave these things alone. You're not interested in them. And if you have to go with a crowd that's engaged in this kind of social drinking, find yourself another crowd. You don't have to go with them. You want to go to the social drinking crowd, go down to the First Presbyterian in Haddonfield. They're full of it. You want to go with that crowd, you, you just go over here. I can go take you to one of these Methodist churches. They're full of it too. But you people who know the Lord, you people who know the way of salvation, you people who love the prophecies, keep thyselves pure. Keep yourself clean. Be done with all of this thing. And give yourself a precious testimony for the sake of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And let's gather around this book. Let's gather around the prophecies. Let's look at these things. And then when you get something like I did this week that came into my hands in such a very unusual way, authentic, oh, it's a beautiful thing. I just looked up into the heavens and I said, Oh, Lord, you're, you're in favor of us. <laughs> you're good to us when you give me this kind of material. And it fits in with what I'm trying to do. That's the way the Lord works. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, bless this service tonight. And may our people, oh, Lord, love the word of God. And we thank thee that Daniel the prophet spoke of these great things. And that he saw that in the end time there would be matters which he didn't then understand, but which he would understand when he stood in his place. And as we come to this end day, as we come near to the time when we can see thy wrath ready to be poured out upon the people of this earth because of their awful sins, 
We thank thee that we're longing and waiting to be delivered from it all. And that we shall not go through that period of awful tribulation, the time of Jacob's troubles. Lord, help us and deliver us that we may be a people of faith, a people who are peculiar, a people who wait upon the Lord and who search the scriptures daily. We thank thee that there were those at the time of the first coming who were waiting for the consolation of Israel because they knew that the time was at hand. And now, Father, as we've reached the very end of the age and our souls are crying out for deliverance, we thank thee that we are numbered among those who are watching and waiting. Watching and waiting. For Christ's sake, amen.